from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. What's the matter, Lucy? Don't you like it? I can't believe it's real. After all we've been through. Like this family in the 1939 film Frontier Horizon, my ancestors left their homes in Tennessee and Pennsylvania and Denmark in the 1800s to try to make it in the wide open West, in Nebraska. Think what it means. New land, new hope. New hope. They were part of a wave of homesteaders sold on the promise of a new life on the prairie, prompted especially by a piece of quintessentially American legislation. The Homestead Act of 1862 follows the Civil War and opens up settlement in the West. And it sounds like a dream. That's Karen Russell, author of the great novel Swamplandia, who also wrote a short story set around the Federal Homestead Act. It's called Proving Up a term that was used at the time for getting title to land through the law. You are rewarded with 160 acres of, you know, what turns out to be, in many cases, submarginal lands. And if you're able to live there for five years and prove up uh, or improve upon the land, then you'll be granted a title. Which was easier said than done. Those five years could be punishing, and a lot of people didn't make it. Homesteaders had to survive winters in tiny houses, sometimes made of sod, often dug into hillsides. And I hear the hungry coyote as he slinks up through the grass round the little old sod shanty on my claim. And in order to get title from the government, they had to make sure even those shanties were up to a very specific building code. It couldn't just be some shack, right? You had to have a particular house of certain dimensions, and that home had to have a glass window. As Russell learned, glass was often so rare that some communities shared just one window for proving up purposes to fool the government. And if the inspector was coming so that a family would prove up on their land, you know, somebody would ride the window over to their sod house. And that really stayed with me. Um, and, you know, windows have so much metaphoric resonance. It's where you're, you're seen and, and where you permit yourself to be seen by a community. It's also sort of how you draw the sky into your home. It's, it's a portal, right, to the horizon. That was really the, the true germ of this story was the metaphoric resonance for me of who gets horizon light in this country. Proving Up is about a family called the Zegners, struggling homesteaders in Nebraska, trying to earn their 160-acre quarter section. The Zegners also have the only window in the area, so when a federal inspector is rumored to be somewhere nearby, they send their young son, Miles, to lend their window to a neighboring farm, with horrific consequences. Proving Up is a surreal, nightmarish read. And it's now a terrific and terrifying opera adapted by the young superstar composer, Missy Mazzoli. My 
initial interest in this story and in creating this opera was, you know, writing, I wanted to write an opera about the American dream. I recently saw Proving Up and afterward talked with Missy Mazzoli and Karen Russell. I had sort of had this idea around the time of the recession, the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, when there was a lot of talk about the American dream and what it means. And is this the death of the American dream? And I was like, well, what is the origin of the American dream? Right. And what what is it? Well, one thing I thought, I mean, it is in its poetic, surreal way, a, a real strong, powerful, true glimpse of the bleakness that that was for many people. For me, it was such an experience. There was such an experiential dimension to what Missy designed. Yes. Where you can really access the true horror. Not, you know, not like a yes. soft or superficial, silly horror, but like the true horror that these people endured and the deep sorrow of, of feeling, you know, in your body, in your bones, feeling the dream becoming a nightmare and, and that kind of inertia and feeling yourself up against these structural forces, the limits of your body, the limits of nature. Because Missy's music, it is like this acoustic weather and it blows right through you and it's not mediated by language the way it is in a story. You know, it's, it's happening to you in real time. It was so incredible to me. By the way, we should say Missy's librettist on Proving Up was Royce Vavrick. And before we talk anymore, let's look at some video of a recent performance. Um, Missy, as we watch, uh, explain what's going on. Okay. So this is Pa. He has come back from visiting his neighbors, the Yotherses, and he's discovered that their homestead is mysteriously abandoned. What puzzles me is he planted a new crop. Which is really strange because they have proved up. They have the title to their land. They had a window. They had everything. And back behind the wheat, he sees these, what he calls, queer little trees. It becomes clear over the course of this aria, these queer little trees are graves. They are bones, queer little knobby ends, ivory, like animal or even human bones. Shaped like roses, a shade of Nearly all of this opera raises the question for me of Americans of that period and in those, that kind of place. Are they admirably resilient or kind of crazy? <laughs> Absolutely both. <laughs> both. Yeah, I would say both too. The planes, when these settlers arrived, you know, I think I was taught as a school child to think that they were, you know, entirely empty. Right. Like a man walking on the moon, like with these these white settlers are the first people ever to arrive there, and so it's it was only sort of later as an adult that you start reading about the genocidal impact of this collision, you know, and then also you know the way that these settlers were weaponized in some senses by the Homestead Act to remove Indians from their land, the way that a lot of this soil really is steeped in literal blood, you know, so. I think there is a shadow side to this story. I think like the little house on the prairie that we all grew up with, right. this this isn't to knock those virtues. They are sincere virtues, and it is incredible. I mean, li- you're here with us, right, Kurt? So <laughs> your ancestors did it. They, they proved up, and they held on, and they found a way to make a go of it. 
And so there is this beautiful American story, but I think sometimes what that narrative can conceal from our view are the extraordinary costs. Yeah, yeah for all of the, the extreme optimism, ambition, risk-taking community, all th- there is, on the other hand... There are many on the other hands. Sure. Well, exactly. and, and history, you know, our, my librettist Royce Favrick always says, you know, history is written by the winners, you know. So even when we did this opera in Omaha, there were a lot of people that said, well, this is wrong, you know, because this this worked out for people. Yeah, the look, Homestead Act worked well. out. We're here. Right. And I'm like, well, yes, you're here, you yeah. know, because the people who failed didn't really produce heirs, <laughs> you know. And, and I had the question, you know, when I was writing the opera and what interested, even before I found Karen's story, you know, um, could an American family do everything right? You know, could they check all the boxes mm-hmm. and still fail? Well, which is when you said, oh, I started thinking about this in 2008, 9, 10. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were a lot of people who did everything right and failed when their right. r- ridiculously cheap mortgages were... They did everything right and their their homes are foreclosed on. or they're, yeah, exactly. Or they did everything right and, and someone's gambling with their pensions, you know, yep. on Wall Street. Yep. I mean, mm-hmm. it's true. Yep. Missy, one of your, your two previous operas, the one that really put you on the map, was an adaptation of Lars von Trier's movie, Breaking the Waves, which is also an extremely bleak story. So are you just drawn to tragedy? You know, I guess, you know, to say that I'm interested in tragedy sounds sort of sort of flip, but I do think that, you know, these darker stories um, have so many layers of, of depth, and, and it's, it's fun to access all these emotional um, right. parts of the character. Do you have a notion yet of what makes a good story to turn into an opera? Yeah, you know, well, I'm always looking for something that is you know, culturally relevant, but also a little bit surreal, a little bit strange. I mean, I think opera is, um, you know, the nature of the genre is that it's, it's so surreal. Everyone's singing their right. thoughts. Right. So that's weird from the beginning. Yes, and even weirder than musical theater. Most musical theater, in right, that sense. Because opera is totally sung through. Right. And um, so, you know, I think Karen's work lends itself so perfectly to opera because she always has this very strange, mysterious element, even if it's a scene that yeah. is rooted in reality. And ghosts. Ghosts. Always ghosts. Yeah. And ghosts. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so these ghosts in, in Proving Up are the Zegner's two daughters who died earlier during their five years in Nebraska. Karen, in your original story, they're they're just a passing detail. But in in the opera, they become this creepy, ever-present chorus. Uh, These girls wearing identical white dresses, like uh, they reminded me of the ghost girls in The Shining. But here, they comment on the action. I want to play a little bit of them. That was one of the most surprising and wonderful things I thought about the opera is to see these dead sisters continue as a presence throughout the opera. You know, they have harmonicas. They they exert such a pressure on the action in the story. They keep death present in every scene just about in the story. And I, I thought that was marvelous. Um, there, There's a passage in your story, Karen, where, where Miles, this young son and sort of a main character in the story, uh, describes uh, the sod house uh, where the the family lives. I I wonder if you could read that passage from your story for us. Sure. Give me just one second. I'll see if I can. We live in one room, 
a ball of pure earth, not enough timber for building walls on the prairie, so we dug right into the sod. It's a cave where we now live. A grave, says Peter, a joke I don't like one bit. It's our home, although it does look like a hiccup in the earth. The floor is sod, the roof is sod, hardened by the red Nebraska sun. If it ever rains again, water will sheet in on our heads for days. The mattress sits on a raised cage of wild plum poles. My mother covers the cook stove with her mother's pilled linen tablecloth to keep the lizards and field mice and moles and rattlesnakes and yellow spiders from falling into our supper. That's Karen Russell reading from her wonderful short story, uh, Proving Up. Um, that that's really uh, evokes that time and place, I think, uh, really beautifully. And of course, as the story did, uh, made me think, oh, Willa Cather, most of whose mm-hmm. work I was required to read growing up in Nebraska, really. <laughs> Have you read Cather, I assume? I love Willa Cather. Yeah. I, re- I read her, I think, when I was working on this story just because she, the, the landscape is a character in all of her work. And Missy, as you were writing the music, were, were you trying to evoke the landscape, the period, in some fashion? Sure, yeah. You know, I mean, the landscape, the way that I decided on the orchestration and the, even the instrumentation, you know, what instruments are going to be in the pit, um, I started by thinking, okay, what is the sound of dryness? You know, this family is begging for rain, and every five seconds in the opera, they're saying, where is God's rain? Where is God's rain? And um, so what does that sound like? You know, and so I was thinking, okay, so there's a harpsichord. Um, there are six harmonicas in the piece. There are seven acoustic guitars in the percussion section that are all hanging from the wall, and the percussionist hits them with with little oh, mallets. I wondered about that because I didn't yeah. see that. Yeah, yeah. So this all produces, you know, a very to me what sounds to my ears like this sort of dry sound, and and this, right. the sound of almost the sound of evaporation, the sound of a sound that kind of peters out, you yeah. know, in a really kind of crispy way. I want to play another clip. Listen to another clip. Uh, This is when Miles, the boy, meets this freaky, giant, scary guy, the sodbuster. You did not see a horse come through here, sir. So, um, Missy, I get the stylized nature of operatic storytelling. Operatic uh, voices is still like, mm, it's still like a thing that I have to each time get used to again. Is that a thing you've loved and been listening to and been part of your musical toolkit forever? Or did you have to learn to love that as well? No, you know, I, I, only I've been writing opera for about six years, and I've you know I've fallen hard for it, <laughs> but it's certainly I totally understand the the weirdness of it, and I understand people saying, "Well, I don't like operatic voices. I can't understand what they're saying." That's all. That's all very real, and yeah. I, I understand. Yeah. I embrace the strangeness of it, and I think that the, the clip you just played with that character, the sodbuster, is a perfect example. Yeah. I mean, he we chose to set him as the, as a bass voice. That's the wonderful bass Andrew Harris, and um, and he's about seven feet tall or seems like it 
I, mean, I seems, love that he seems seven feet tall. He's yeah. like my height. Really? I mean, he's like, <laughs> wow. You know, it's just that costume and his. Wow. And the, I think his voice makes him yeah. seem that way. So that's that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Like the people can have this otherworldly presence with these voices mm-hmm. that are rare. You know, I think there may be like ten people in the world who could sing that part the way he does. Yeah. And there's something spectacular. It's like watching a gifted athlete. And that's how I think of operatic voices. Uh-huh. It's such a strange gift. It's such a rare gift. And um, if you can work it into the story, if it makes sense for the story, then right. it's great. If someone's singing about what they had for breakfast and there's no right. nothing behind it, then it becomes super weird. That's very interesting. <laughs> but it makes sense what you're saying that like writing about weirdness and strangeness goes with what – in 2018, I and others find to be, ooh, that's that's a strange kind of singing, you know. Mm-hmm. That, so that it, it, it serves it yeah. in that way. It's larger than life, you know. And I'm interested in writing about, you know, death, sex, right. betrayal. Right. You know, all these things are, are fascinating. Right. And, and they, the voice can, can contain that. Yeah. You know, Missy was comparing these singers to sort of train the joy of watching professional athletes. Ma has an aria, you know, that the mother has lost her daughter's. At night, she goes out mourning for them. It was like this er emotion. It was a grief that everybody recognizes in their bodies, but none of our voices can <laughs> right. can get up to that register, right? It's like if you could give life to that sort of despair or hopelessness and also love and, all, you know, like the, the complexity of the emotion, it just felt like exactly the right match for the tone of this story to me. Sad story, Happy Collaborators. Karen Russell's short story, Proving Up, appears in her collection, Vampires in the Lemon Grove. Missy Mazzoli and Royce Babrick's opera adaptation of Proving Up was staged recently in New York, where I saw it, following performances in Washington, D.C. and Omaha, Nebraska. Opera Omaha also provided us with recordings of the production. Coming up... When you start off as a rock star... You're always trying to get as much daylight as possible because most of our lives were spent uh, nocturnally. But end up with more of a LinkedIn career. I mean, uh, now it's, uh, it's more about getting up and wearing a decent collared shirt. That's next on Studio 360. All Spangled Studio 360. A lot of people are in bands in their 20s and then move out of it. But this is a story about a guy who spent his 20s and some of his 30s really living the full-time rock dream, making albums and releasing them, touring the country, playing gigs all over the place, night after night. You're always trying to get as much daylight as possible because most of our lives were spent uh, nocturnally. But that was then. I mean, uh, now it's, uh, it's more about getting up and wearing a decent collared shirt. My name is Bill Janovitz. Some people may know me as the guitar player singer of the band Buffalo Tom. I grew up playing band instruments in school, and around that age of 13, I picked up the guitar. And, uh, Pretty soon after that, formed my first band down uh, in, in my hometown of Huntington, Long Island. My family moved up to Massachusetts when I was in high school. 
found my way to University of Massachusetts at Amherst. I was just a guy trying to find another band, and that's where Buffalo Tom started. We were three, three friends, and Tom McGinnis was game for trying to out the drums, and Chris Colburn, who was a couple of years ahead of me, and he was playing guitar in another band that I would sit in with every once in a while up at UMass. It just sort of felt like very organic. We, I, I had some songs pent up, and so I became the singer, and one thing led to another, and Buffalo Tom was up and running. We really felt like we were part of something good, and we didn't necessarily think we were going to be rock stars or anything like that. With that fourth album, Big Red Letter Day, 93-94 era, uh, we were really putting it out there. Went outside in the morning time, but I got lost along the way. You said, I don't need anything that way. No, no. The biggest money we ever made was making a publishing deal. Helped get us onto this show called My So Called Life with Claire Danes and Jared Leto. I'm in love. His name is Jordan Catalano. He was left back, twice. Once I almost touched his shoulder in the middle of a pop quiz. He's always closing his eyes like it hurts to look at things. They wrote this whole script. So you're going to Buffalo Tom Friday? Where they mentioned Buffalo Tom like a billion times. Buffalo Tom. <laughs> Buffalo Tom. Buffalo Tom. Buffalo Tom. Buffalo Tom. Buffalo Tom. Buffalo Tom. They're even cuter than on their CD. One of the main songs that, that became a pivotal moment in that show when she and her love interest finally kiss and they put up the faders on our song Late at Night. was huge for us. So, you know, there was a band called the Goo Goo Dolls, and they, are, they, they graciously invited us on this tour. I'm talking about, like, 1999. Now we're on our, like, sixth record, I guess it is. And I remember playing the Upper Peninsula of Wisconsin, and uh, we're up in Oshkosh, and we're we're playing to these like uh, you know five thousand or ten thousand seat arenas, and it's filled with mostly young girls. It was more depressing than anything else. I'm just like, why am I working so hard to try to convince these girls in Wisconsin that they have to like Buffalo Tom? <laughs> these girls are cl- far closer to my my about-to-be-born child than I am to them. You know, it's uh, the writing was on the wall. We got dropped, sure enough. Luckily, we had some money saved up, and we said, you know what, guys? Let's not get right back on the recording touring bandwagon. Let's take some time off and reassess and spend some time with families. You know, enough of that time, and you have to get a day job. Here I was, a a new father, 
I was running out of money. My wife was working a day job, uh, a real career, I should say, not a day job. And I was home with my child. I felt like I should be really happy. And I was going through an identity crisis. I was in my early 30s. And I was starting to send out resumes like, what can I do? Here it is. Here's my resume. I graduated with a communications degree and a comparative literature minor from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst in 1989. And here it is. It's 2001. What else did you do during those years? Well, I was in a rock band. Okay. Uh, we're looking for somebody with a little bit more experience in this particular advertising agency. <laughs> and I'm like, well... What else can I do? Well, always in the back of my mind was, you can always get your real estate license. It's America. That's what people do. (laughs) They get their real estate license, right? I wasn't really attracted to being that guy on the on the bus bench or whatever you call it or i didn't want to be like that stereotype uh, that some people think of as real estate agents always be closing always be closing some people might know me as a real estate agent here in uh, based in lexington massachusetts Lexington has three very historic modernist developments. I got really interested before I even got into real estate because I'd be riding around my I'd be riding around town in my bike in between tours and going, "What is the story of this neighborhood?" Like, and it was the still the early days of of the internet. And so when I got into real estate, I did some real heavy research and I started to tell the stories of these, you know, without really thinking I might get listings or buyers for them, but I wanted to tell the story of these. And so I formed this web page and it's called modernmass.com now. And we became, my partner and I, John C., became sort of these go-to realtors for modernist houses all around Massachusetts. And there's quite a bit. It's not enough to make a complete living doing. We do all kinds of real estate, of course. But um, we're not the guys that are up in some suburban development of McMansions necessarily. We're, we're sort of running around at these really cool uh, houses telling the stories of the architects. I, every once in a while, I go in and, and sort of uh, fool around on, on clients' pianos. And sometimes I even take myself singing like a honky-tonk song and posting them up on Facebook. The key to my heart. Being in a band during the mid to late 90s when we were when we were sort of at our peak, we were in sales, basically, you know? That's what I realized. We were, we were entrepreneurs. I don't think I could have articulated exactly those skills that I had learned uh, that could be applied to a, a real career. After we decided to take a break, we, we didn't stop. I was still kind of doing some solo tours, and Buffalo Tom was still making noise here and there about uh, doing and We were always doing a few shows a year, and we, we knew eventually we'd probably do another record together. It took a while. We didn't make another record until 2007. The three of us have, have remarkably grown up together in Buffalo Tom. The band would never be anything other than the three of us. So we all, we look to each other to see who's available for what. And so we still get to go out and play. This is such a, a privilege for us. It's sort of all gravy now. We're just glad to be, I mean, we're glad to be alive, really. But to, to be able to go do this and put out another record. Our record's called Quiet and Peace. And it's, uh, we put it out this, this past year, 2018. Was it time coming and going? Time wanting but not really knowing. 
This is a song called "I'll Be Gone" off our new album, and it's it, it speaks to this sort of um, missing my son and missing my daughter, and maybe even about being in a band still. And the beauty of real estate and having your own career and being at a certain point in your life in general. That's Bill Janovitz, a real estate broker whom you can find at modernmass.com and the singer and guitarist for the band Buffalo Tom, whose latest album is called Quiet and Peace and is available at buffalotom.com. Our story was produced by Lauren Hansen. So what's the thing you do to pay the bills while you work on your masterpiece or wow audiences. Maybe you're selling caskets while writing a children's book about an unlikely friendship between a cat and a swan. Or maybe you're a pipe fitter, but also shooting an experimental film about the existential ennui of a cat and a swan. Whatever your day job creative work combo is, we'd like to hear about it. So tell us in an email or a voice memo, which you can send to incoming at studio360.org. Coming up, these albums are not in in, uh, pristine condition. A conceptual artist collects thousands of copies of the Beatles' White Album and discovers that those featureless white covers really aren't all the same. Here's a copy uh, that's written in red marker, Don't Show This to Deborah. Obviously, I don't know Deborah, but you can only imagine what happened. That's ahead on Studio 360, except if your name is Deborah, stop listening. Studio 360. The Gardner Museum is a very unusual place. It's not just four walls that house magnificent art. It's a reproduction, Renaissance-style Venetian palace plunked down in a leafy neighborhood of Boston. In the wee hours of March 18, 1990, two men dressed in police officer uniforms came to the side door entrance of the Gardner Museum. It was 1 a.m. Saturday that two men posing as uniformed policemen fooled security guards here by claiming to be investigating a disturbance. And were let in by the security guard who was on duty. And once inside, they were able to get him away from the security desk and the panic button. They put cuffs on him, put him up against the wall. They did the same thing with his partner who had been out on his rounds, who had been called back to the desk. And then uh, they led both men to the basement of the Gardner Museum, where they shackled them uh, about 50 feet apart from each other, and uh, then went on to have their way with the museum, stealing. A priceless collection of artwork was stolen early this morning from Boston's Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Initial estimates put the value of the stolen works at at least $200 million. There's a terrific new podcast called Last Scene, co-hosted by Kelly Horan, that dives deep into that 1990 robbery of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. I find all art heists interesting, but that one really struck me, both because of the great valuable art involved and because when I was going to college near Boston, I became a huge fan and habitué of the Gardner. And even though I knew the basic facts of the unsolved mystery, 
Over the 10 episodes of Last Scene, Horan and her co-host Jack Rodolico shed lots of fascinating new light. The thieves made off with 13 artworks that night. Uh, three of them were by Rembrandt. Uh, one of them was uh, his masterwork, Storm on the Sea of Galilee, which was his only seascape. Uh, one Vermeer called The Concert, which is one of only 35 or 36 Vermeers known to exist. Uh, a landscape by a painter named Hovert Flink. It was previously thought to be a Rembrandt. Uh, and a Shang Dynasty coup that's like a vase, and that was in also in the Dutch room. Uh, from the short gallery of the museum, they stole another six works, five Degas sketches. They were uh, equestrian sketches and a bronze uh, eagle finial that sat atop a Napoleonic flag. And then from the blue room on the first floor of the museum, they stole a painting by Edouard Manet called Chez Tortoni, and it uh, depicts uh, a man with sort of lovely brown eyes and a big black top hat sort of gazing out at you. And we haven't seen any of it since. We have not seen one since. I was really struck by somebody in your in your podcast who described what was stolen. Uh, I want to play a bit of her. Well, I always say for people who find it hard to imagine the enormity of this, who maybe are musically oriented or theatrically oriented, to imagine what if Beethoven's Fifth Symphony could never be heard again? Or what if... Louis Armstrong's work could never be heard again, or what if Hamlet could never be played again? I mean, these are works of the civilization that are so important to remove them as to remove a piece of our civilization. Uh, That's Anne Hawley, who was uh, the director of The Gardener at the time of the uh, robbery. Um, She had just become the director uh, when this happened and then stayed for another 25 years. Does she feel culpable at all? That's a big question. I don't know that she would feel culpable. Um, Anne Hawley took the job uh, somewhat reluctantly. She had hoped to bring an international arts festival to Boston and was, was sort of persuaded to take the job. And she had a lot to contend with when she got to this museum. Uh, you know, they, they had budget challenges, and, and they had to think about uh, fire protection. There was, you know, there were six smoke detectors in the entire place. They had to think about uh, all kinds of concerns, including theft insurance uh, right. for the collection. Rembrandt's uh, had been stolen in Massachusetts twice before in the 1970s, one from the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston and one from the Worcester Museum of Art. And uh, Holly told me that she had those thefts in mind when she went to the board and said, you know, please, let's look into what it would cost to insure this collection. And uh, she had gotten around to climate control. Uh, Paintings were sweating. She took care of that. And she'd gotten around to fire protection. And next on her list was uh, insurance. Uh, What about security? The, The protocols, as you depict them, sound pretty lax. They were bananas. I mean, you know, it, it's it's amazing when you think about it. This is a, a house, a four-story uh, Venetian palace full of treasures, and there was one panic button for the whole museum. And, and essentially, once the thieves were able to uh, get in, uh, that was it. It was game over because there was nothing between them physically and the guards. There was no sort of bulletproof glass. There was no special room. I mean, the guard just literally stepped away from a table. And it's true that what they had at the time 
time was comparable to what many museums had. But um, in terms of protocol, it was, I mean, you could drive a truck through it. You had uh, security guards reporting, um, to us anyway, that uh, pizza deliveries, you know, delivery guys with late night food runs would be buzzed into the museum. Um, the director herself uh, would come in with late-night guests, and you think, well, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is that what if there's uh, someone lurking in the in the bushes waiting for his chance to pounce? So it was a hot mess, I think, security-wise. You've also got this great tape from one of the museum guards who was working that night. Here he is talking with your colleague from the Boston Globe, Steve Kirkchin. For some reason, you know, I, I seem to be the only person involved in this thing who doesn't give a f- who did it. Really? I seem to be the only one who's not trying to figure it out. And that mainly comes down to, I'm glad to be alive. Now that's this guy, Rick Abbott. Talk about him. I think that if you wrote um, a film treatment for a, a museum heist and you had a character based on Rick Abbott, um, someone would send it back to you and say, cut it out, yeah. you know, make him believable. So, you know, Rick Abbott is, was a self-described hippie. He had dropped out of Berklee College of Music here in Boston. His, uh, his great life's devotion was the jam band he played in. He hosted um, concerts uh, in, his, in his basement where he lived and charged five bucks a head to help pay the rent. And by his own admission, he had a pretty... A lax approach to security at the Gardner Museum. You know, Abbott would often go to work stoned or drunk. Um, he didn't really dress like a security guard when he was found shackled in the basement. He had on tight red corduroys, white high tops. He had a fanny pack around his waist, uh, a tie-dye Berkeley College of Music t-shirt with his security guard uh, shirt unbuttoned over it, long kind of ringlets of rock star curls, which when I saw the pictures of his head all duct taped, I felt for him because I figured he lost some hair on that one. Um, and he threw a major party in the museum. You know, he on, on New Year's Eve one night, uh, he and some acquaintances uh, were tripping on mushrooms, and they, they partied in the courtyard of the Gardner Museum. So this was not a guy <laughs> who thought, you know, I have, uh, I have Gardner's treasures in my hands. Um, the current uh, director of security for the Gardner Museum uh, is also an interesting character in your, in your podcast. Um, uh, who, he's uh, determined, obviously, to dis- solve this mystery, to be the guy who solves it. Uh, here's a clip of him. This case is like the perfect storm for someone like me, for it to like ruin your life, you know, to um, have 13 albatrosses around your neck forever. Because I know that if I go to my grave unsuccessful, that I'll go to my grave an unhappy person. And his name is Anthony Amore. Um, so talk about him and how long he's been there and why he has taken on this Javert role in your story. Oh, it, it's, it's so well put. Um, yeah, so Anthony Amore is a fascinating man. He uh, he took the job as director of security at the Gardner um, 15 years after the heist, so he had to make up for a lot of lost time. And he came from uh, a homeland security background. He was he revamped security at Logan Airport after uh, the September 11th attacks. So he is a, a law and order guy. Um, and he is absolutely 100% committed to bringing this artwork back. I have never met somebody 
who is more obsessive. And he has this kind of steel trap uh, brain for all the details of the case. As I've uh, gone to him uh, for follow-up questions and things, uh, you know, he's sort of said, I can't believe you don't remember that. And I said, hmm. well, no, I don't, because I am <laughs> not in as deep as you. Anthony Amore, the, the security director, says he talks to the FBI every day. Did he really? He said that, right? He said that, and honestly, I believe it. Um, I think that no one is working on this more than he is, and and he has a special uh, clearance to have access to all of the FBI's case files. And I think that he's always, uh, if not running down new leads, I think he's trying to re-examine old ones in a in a new way. Do you have any hope that like somebody will hear this and and it'll break new leads and it'll, the whole case will be changed? Yes. And I I had no illusions about solving it myself, I have to be honest. But um, I do believe that the way that this case will be solved is by recognition of the artworks. Um, People don't know the pieces that we're talking about. And so my hope was that um, if this is a success, people would go and they would seek out the images, which you you can find by going to our website, and and familiarize themselves. Because what we know about um, uh, art heists of this nature that have where, where a generation has passed before there's been a recovery, it's often down to uh, the recognition of a piece by someone who didn't realize that it was, you know, in their attic or uh, hanging in the case of a, a Norman Rockwell that went missing on their on their kitchen wall. <laughs> so I do hope that uh, by getting images out there of, of the stolen works, that might prod some uh, some new leads. Well, uh, this is a great story. Thank you. Thank uh, you for congratulations. saying Congratulations. Kelly Horan co-hosts the new podcast, Last Scene. It's a production of WBUR and the Boston Globe. And you can see images of the stolen artworks from The Gardener on our website, studio360.org. We are moments away from the 50th anniversary of the 1968 Beatles double album, officially called The Beatles, better known as The White Album. The design of its cover is, of course, completely white, image-free, and wordless, except for the name of the band, no bigger than a stick of gum, embossed but not inked near the center. It was conceived by the pop artist Richard Hamilton. The story is that the Beatles wanted to move to the opposite extreme from the design of their last album, Sgt. Pepper's, with that hectic, super colorful collage of famous people. Rutherford Chang is an artist born a dozen years after the White Album came out and fascinated by it, by the way it looks and what it means in the culture. As part of an ongoing project he calls We Buy White Albums, he has collected thousands of the records. I have 2,173 copies of the White Album. So we sent our producer, Tommy Bazarian, to check out the collection. I suppose that an obvious question is, why would you want so many copies of the same record? It's, been a long it's when I realized that every copy has become a unique object. Millions of these identical white canvases went out into the world 50 years ago. 
and have all become these artifacts of where they've been. Rutherford Chang has 2,000 copies of the White Album in storage. But at his apartment in New York's Chinatown, there were about 100 recent acquisitions leaning against the wall, organized neatly by serial number. We took a seat on the floor and started leafing through. These albums are not in, in uh, pristine condition. Like this copy, um, you know, in, in thick marker, it's written the Sherman Paul Glass Beatles. And in the inside cover, there's a mustache drawn on John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Ringo also has a goatee. As we browsed through the piles of records, I noticed more examples of how the white covers had been altered by their previous owners. Hmm. This has a Lichtenstein flag and Astra sticker from the Jetsons. This is a copy that's completely covered with mold. The whole left side is a magenta tone, and the bottom is mostly spotted black. Where is this? Oh, yeah. Here's a copy that... Um, it's written in red marker, don't show this to Deborah. <laughs> Obviously, I don't know Deborah, but you can only imagine what happens. Uh, you know, people ask, like, what's my favorite copy? But it's really um, the contrast between the different conditions that makes the collection interesting to me. Yeah, and actually, if you, if you wouldn't mind keeping these in order. Of course. <laughs> it's fine, it's fine. Rutherford exhibits the collection in the form of a mock record store, with all of the copies arranged by serial number, which means essentially in the order that they were produced in that first printing 50 years ago. They'll actually be in bins that people can browse, except obviously they're all the same record. The first time he showed the project, he listened to quite a few copies himself. And he noticed something. The covers weren't the only things that had taken on 50 years of wear and tear. Similarly to how the covers have all become these unique objects, the vinyl discs, they all play slightly differently because of scratches, dirt, and age. This gave him the idea for an audio art piece. He digitized a hundred copies of the record, then layered the resulting audio files on top of each other and pressed them into a single vinyl. It's like listening to a hundred distinct copies of the White Album, starting at exactly the same time. Each side starts out basically sounding like a very messed up Beatles record. But due to the way that each different copy plays differently, they gradually go out of sync. You can still make out that it's a Beatles song for maybe the first half of the side. But by the end of the side, it's complete noise.
I'll, I'll show you a copy. Rutherford did this layering of white albums visually too. For each of the albums he listened to, he took a picture of the cover. Then he combined these into a new composite cover, featuring all of the marks and dirt and drawings from each individual copy. The cover looks nowhere close to white, probably more like a really dirty, graffitied toilet wall or something. Rutherford is not the only Beatles fan obsessed by the White Album, and he realizes his fixation has become pretty time-consuming. But it's okay if you don't get it. If it made perfect sense, it wouldn't be an obsession. Yeah, I suppose most of these, for a, a normal record collector, would not be valuable. But um, I wouldn't consider myself a normal record collector or a normal Beatles fan. <laughs> That's Rutherford Chang talking about his project, We Buy White Albums. You can see photos of all 2,173 copies at his Instagram account, We Buy White Albums. Our story was produced by Tommy Bizzari. And that's it for this episode. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. Our show this week was mixed by... Tommy Bazarian. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I'm pretty sure that I'm Kurt Anderson. When he was found shackled in the basement, he had on... Tight red corduroys, white high tops. He had a fanny pack around his waist. Thanks very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, America's love affair with a motorcycle. I did go to a wedding once where a guy married his motorcycle, and this was a dead serious marriage. He was going to be buried with that thing. Was it a Harley? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The Harley Davidson, an American icon, next time on Studio 360.